Hello everyone, here is Daniel Budai with a new episode of our e-commerce podcast. And uh, today I have Paul uh, Farago in the studio or in the online studio, let's say. And he's one of the founders of Ace Marks. And uh, this is a footwear company. And uh, actually, they are the most funded uh, shoes company on Kickstarter. They raise almost $600,000. And uh, they have a very special business model that he will share with us today. And I think footwear is a very saturated niche. So it's very hard to stand out. And I'm really curious how they manage to do it. So interesting topics today. Hey, Paul, how are you today? Hey, Dan, I'm great. Thank you. Thanks for having me today. So before we start talking about this business, I always start with some background story. I'm really curious if uh, this is your first business or you had a nine to five before. So what what's your past? What did you do before this business? So it's it's not really my first business. Um, I've been in the footwear business for about 20 or so years, maybe a little bit longer than that. My family's been in the footwear business uh, since really since the late 80s. Um, and I've, you know, during, I spent my summers when I was young unloading containers in the warehouse there. Uh, I, I worked pretty much every position there is in a footwear business from logistics, operations, um, you know, you name it. I did it sourcing, uh, just in everything in between. Um, I also, when I was in college, I started a company called Lease Trader, which is a, a lease transfer marketplace. Um, we've since gotten out of that business. Um, it's owned by, by who the co-founders were at, this, at that time. Um, so it's not my first business, but the footwear business, for the most part, has has uh, been in my blood for for quite a long time. And in 2016, I I left the family business, and I started Ace Marks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you could see the whole, you know, every element of this niche of this industry, right? The footwear industry. I'm sure this uh, was very beneficial for you to see every element of it, and. I'm on your website now, and it says your uh, price is around $300, business overhead, production cost included. But in, in retail, there are additional elements, wholesale, retail expenses, retail markup, and that's how it becomes three or sorry, two times higher price. So I'm pretty sure when you made this graphic, then your experience was very, very useful in this, right? Yeah, 100%. Uh, traditionally, you know, in our in our other business, which frankly still exists, and it's still an operating business, and it's mostly wholesale focus selling to retailers. Uh, the math works that you know, we go we source we produce at a factory, uh, we mark it up, uh, usually around 40 to 50%. And then we sell it to a retailer who then themselves marks it up another 50 to 60%. So the difference here is that we, you know, we kind of skip that second part of it. So instead of having that second markup from the wholesaler to the retailer, we just uh, kind of go directly to the consumer. Yeah. And this is what we call direct, uh, direct to consumer, which is so popular nowadays. And I think the online space really enabled many manufacturers and, uh, and physical businesses to sell their products directly, which was not possible before. And they need the, they needed the retail companies. So that's something very interesting. Um, 
And I'll add to that from a, from a producer perspective, what was really nice about this business model is before we'd make a collection and, you know, call it 200 to 800 pairs of shoes, we'd present it to buyers. And then the buyers were kind of the gatekeeper as to what the consumer can see. So if a brand wanted to try something new or, or introduce a new initiative, new materials, new colors, they'd have to get past the gatekeeper, the buyer for the retail store. And a lot of times a buyer would be very conservative on what they buy. They'd look at their numbers from last season or last quarter or however, whatever metrics they would use. They'd say, you know, we sold this really well. Let's buy a lot of the same thing. Maybe we'll try one thing new. But then, you know, the consumer missed out on a lot of innovation. And in this model, we get to kind of make everything we want and show it directly to the consumer. So I think the benefit besides just the price, Thing the consumer also benefits from having a lot more variety and innovation in their wardrobe. Yeah, the feedback cycles, the feedback loops are faster, right? Because you can test whatever you want. There is no middleman who decides what you can sell or whatever. I think that's great. Exactly, it's huge. Yeah. That's a huge part of the business, and one of the things, one of the benefits that I like the most about it, actually. Yeah. So one important question: So how do you stand out in this very saturated market? With my agency, we have and we use, we, we had and we still have a few footwear clients, and we can see how saturated this business is. Um, we have a client who they, they stand out because they sell medical shoes. I think that's a good niche. And, and others, they stand out in a different way. But what's your approach? Yeah, to, to be frank with you, my my idea to stand out when we started the business uh, was creating bold shoes and also really focusing on the craftsmanship and the way that we made the shoes. Um, I'll say that it, it's changed a little bit since then, but the, originally, like the you know today, I'll, I'll tell you that our most our best selling shoe is is a black cap to Oxford and a black hole cut, and then on the sneaker side, it's a white sneaker. So uh, you probably couldn't get more traditional or or frankly boring than that but it's wonderful it's what people buy my original idea was to really have a lot of variety of of things that were different than what you'd find at a at an existing shoe brands so that's why we really focused a lot on patinas uh the way that shoe is polished uh creating like very unique uh color colorways and color combinations and making really bold shoes so we really wanted to be that that one-stop shop for a guy that wanted something different, wanted to stand out and used a lot of times, you know, men wear blue suits, black suits, gray suits, and they stand out with the accessories, you know, the tie, maybe the little cufflink or, or the shoes is probably the biggest one. So we really wanted to be the go-to company for that. But of course, consumers dictate uh, what we sell at the end of the day. And, and so we do try to add variety, but ultimately uh, we do end up doing the most volume in, you know, black and brown shoes. So, so today, once I realized that customers want that black and brown shoe from us, uh, we probably, you know, we utilize, and, and I'd say another challenge with selling shoes online is you can't touch and feel the luxury, right? So we, we have about a 43 or 44% customer return rate at the moment, which is pretty high for our industry, for our, for our niche. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that once a customer tries the shoe, they're going to fall in love with it. They understand the value that they get. So, so for us, the challenge and, and how we try to stand out is trying to get that message across. Like there's no, you're not going to find this type of craftsmanship, this type, this type of quality just about anywhere else. So, we, you know, we use a lot of influencer marketing uh, people that in particular, we don't really just go for influencers that have large audiences. We really look for, for influencers that have the trust of their audience, uh, which we think is, is really important because we're not selling like a $20, $50 product that's an impulse buy. 
we're really selling a product that the customer has to be educated on. So the more people that we find that can help us educate the customer and explain to them why our shoes stand out, why there's a lot of value in our product, that's that's really probably our, our, our biggest our, the biggest way that we attract customers and, and really try to stand out of the marketplace, mm-hmm. just just explaining that value proposition. Yeah. And what uh, type of influencers do you use? So for the, for the most part, uh, we use men's style influencers. Uh, but again, you know, frankly, that's also become uh, very difficult over the last couple of years. There was a time, especially when we launched around 2016 to 2018, where the influencer market was a lot newer and uh i'd say less over exploited and mm-hmm. when there was a time where not every post was a sponsored post or every youtube video was a sponsored yeah. video uh and so unfortunately that's become a more a difficult channel as well just because they've lost a lot of the trust of the audience with so much sponsorship um but still there's always you know hidden gems that you can find and you know guys you know that, that take shoes apart and talk about the quality of the components inside the shoes Again, just really anything that can help differentiate the differentiate our shoes from other shoes and explain the value to the customer. So it's really yeah. a variety of influencers we're using these days. Yeah, yeah. and uh, what approach do you prefer? Like uh, long-term uh, influencer partnerships? So I know companies where they even give equity to an influencer because it's so important for them, but it's definitely something long-term. Um, and then they promote the brand the products regularly or you rather prefer having a bigger pool of influencers and then it's uh you know a bit more transactional and they uh post a few um social media posts about it or videos they they explain how your products are different and then uh that's that's your approach we we definitely prefer long-term partnerships Uh, we think that helps build trust and also again it's a we have a high value item so it's we're generally not going to see a great return if it's a one-time Instagram post or one-time Instagram story. It's more about an evolution, uh, you know, an evolution between us and the influencer and their audience. So, you know, there's, you're not going to be able to fit in all the great things about our product in, in one post. So the more time that the influencer spends talking about our product to their audience, we think that the better the partnership is and the better the results are for us and, frank, and frankly for their audience because they're going to be buying just a, a better value product. They're going to be getting a lot more bang for their buck. So for sure, long-term partnerships. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. And um, yeah, let's talk about Kickstarter. So you are uh, the most uh, finance or most founded uh, footwear company on Kickstarter. And I'm wondering why why you decided to go to Kickstarter yeah actually i think we lost that title we've raised over three and a half million dollars on the platform across uh, five campaigns now maybe even close to four um we lost that title i think it was in 2019 to sports shoe company uh great people also um but we went to kickstarter because to be very frank with you when you know i had a lot of i have a lot of footwear experience we had a lot of good relationships uh, with our manufacturers even before i started ace marks but when I made our first shoe collection and I knew I wanted to go direct to consumer, it kind of kind of hit me like a bomb. Great. Now I have a website. I have a bunch of shoes, but like, how do I drive traffic? We also weren't VC funded. I didn't have millions of dollars in the bank to, to get this project off the ground. Um, and around this was 2015, actually. And in 2015, I had seen a few Kickstarter campaigns that looked interesting. Kickstarter was something that even to me was just becoming something that I, I was realizing was going on. So I said, you know, to hell with it. 
uh, let's let's give this a shot. Um, we were going to launch the products in, in early 2015, but I spent a year, literally a year, studying Kickstarter campaigns. Uh, I remade and reshot our complete kick, our first Kickstarter video. I think it was somewhere three to five times. I don't remember at this point. I spent a lot of time. I, I transcribed every successful uh, Kickstarter campaign. I tried to figure out if there's a formula to what makes a successful versus not a successful one. Spent a lot of time on it, and and that's that's you know really for lack of a lack of an understanding of e-commerce on my part, I thought Kickstarter would be a great a great way to great way to launch this. And and people told me no one's going to buy shoes on Kickstarter because there are plenty of shoe companies. You know, I think even by that time, mm-hmm. Thursday Boot Company had to come off had a had a launched on Kickstarter and they did all right. Nothing, nothing incredible, but I ended up doing it anyways. And we raised $574,000. I think it was in that first campaign, which at the time was the record for a footwear company. Um, and you know, in the post campaign, uh, post campaign survey period, we, we did an additional, I think it was hundred thousand or so, uh, close to that. So we had, you know, we did close to $700,000 in revenue on Kickstarter just to, to fund our first campaign, which was much more than I could have ever dreamed of. And, and I think what really came from that and the reason we kept on going to Kickstarter was obviously it was successful, but I, and I didn't realize at the time, but you got a lot of information. So we got, you know, we, all we did was create a bunch of samples, frankly, we didn't have production, we had nothing, but we were able to get through those interactions with our Kickstarter backers, we were really able to get a lot of feedback, what shoes they liked, what shoes they didn't like, what colors they liked, maybe what we're missing in our collection. Uh, uh, frankly, I never even thought to make belts with our with our shoes. And, you know, our Kickstarter backers told me, you know, I'd like a matching belt. I'd like shoe trees. That's how we started adding a lot, adding a lot of those accessories by listening to them. So it was, you know, besides the funding, which was great, Kickstarter was really a great platform. Again, like you mentioned, feedback loop. It was really, really quick. We acted quick. And I think that our backers really appreciated that we were listening to them almost in real time, I would say, and adding products and adding styles and colors as they were suggesting them. So I think that created a great, great founding relationship with a lot of our, our, our initial backers. Yeah, like everyone who I talk to who is on Kickstarter or Indiegogo, they always tell me that actually not the money part was the most important. And most of them, they didn't even dream about this, that the feedback is even more important for many. So that's interesting to hear. 100%. Um, yeah, and um, I'm wondering why it was so successful in your opinion. So that first campaign, uh, it really, I think it was a lot of luck. Um, we, If I told you that we went into that campaign with a master plan, I'd be completely lying to you. We were winging it uh, pretty much the whole time. Uh, what we, you know, the, the, everything that I had read about Kickstarter uh, going up, leading up to that told told you that you want to make sure that you hit that that uh, that funding number within the first forty eight hours, and you do that through making sure that your friends and family are completely involved, and you pretty much are certain that you're going to have that initial funding from your friends and family. So, I emailed everyone that I'd ever met in business, you know, everyone, every family member, everyone, all my friends. Everyone knew about the campaign and like I had some commitments. I think our original goal was $20,000 in that first campaign. Mm-hmm. I probably had commitments for five to $7,000 of it, maybe 10. Um, but 
you know, we, we, we eventually got there, you know, Kickstarter also throws in, throws in some traffic, which thankfully converted early on. So we did hit that first 24, 48 hours. And then after that, frankly, we, we didn't know what we were doing. Uh, we, we knew that we wanted to, to reach out to some influencers, maybe get some PR. Uh, so we did, we did get, we did pay for some placements. Um, and frankly, I think that our, our biggest break in that first campaign was, uh, Julian, emailed uh, an online influencer who I thought really wasn't even an influencer, but he was a paid spokesperson for one of our, one of our competitors. Mm-hmm. Um, frankly, it was, it, he sent that email by mistake. Um, I probably wouldn't have sent that email and it turned out to be, you know, uh, actually to Antonio Centeno. Um, and we built a really great relationship with him uh, through the years and a lot of the people within his network. And uh, that was again when, you know, they maybe only had a couple hundred thousand YouTube uh, YouTube subscribers and some of the people in his network even less. Now they have millions, each of them. Um, and we, you know, we became very friendly. Like they they got a sample of the product. They loved it. They understood the quality. They understood the value prop. They understood that I can deliver, which is very important in a Kickstarter campaign because of my history. Yeah. And and uh, they really helped us uh, market it. They really helped us uh, grow that first campaign. And I think that they were probably a key element of that that whole that whole network that he's in yeah that's a great story um thank you <laughs> how about indiegogo by the way have you thought about it or any other platforms or a- actually any other ways of getting investors yeah so so yes we actually ended up doing around in 2019 with outside we raised money from outside investors but indiegogo we we launched our, our biggest Kickstarter campaign ever was in 2017, where we did just under 1.3 million in the campaign. Um, and from there, we went. Uh, Indiegogo was courting us. Um, they have a team that goes out there and tries to get successful Kickstarter uh, creators onto their platform. So they convinced us that once our Kickstarter campaign is over, we should go on to there, and the traffic that we were driving to Kickstarter should be rerouted mm-hmm. to Sunshine to Indiegogo. Frankly, you know great people at indiegogo but for our category it just didn't didn't work um unfortunately and i and i feel bad saying it but the reality is that after our first campaign where we did you know 574,000, we just created a very basic landing page where we drove the traffic afterwards that performed better than our indiegogo campaign did uh coming mm-hmm. off a 1.3 million dollar campaign so i know indiegogo is amazing for certain categories particularly tech products uh, but for footwear, they just don't have, don't seem to have the audience for fashion and footwear. So, yeah, un- unfortunately, it didn't work. And, and in terms of of other platforms and other other um, other financing, we we did end up raising uh, money from private investors in 2019, right before the pandemic. Uh, timing wasn't great, but but we did look for some outside money. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a good advice to everyone that you should do your research. What platform fits you the best? Because uh, I could hear similar stories both about Kickstarter or Indiegogo. If you have a tech startup, maybe Indiegogo is a better option for you. So, yeah, do your homework and your research on these platforms. Right. You uh, mm-hmm. Actually, one thing I would add when you asked me about our, the success of our first Kickstarter campaign, uh, and, and this is kind of a warning to people looking to, to crowdfund. The, the crowdfunding industry is relatively big and at the same time kind of small. Everyone knows it everybody or of, or of each other. And unfortunately, there's a good amount of bad actors in there and a lot of contracts that don't make sense. And, and unfortunately, I see this a lot. I get reached out to a lot to, to advise people and when they're launching a crowdfunding campaign. And I see a lot of bad contracts, a lot of marketing agencies. And, and unfortunately, mm-hmm. you know, 
people get very excited to launch their product and they don't pay attention to the details of those contracts. Mm -hmm. But with a lot of agencies, uh, they're essentially signing away their ability to perform well if that agency doesn't perform well for you. So these agencies will, will get payment up front, essentially run tests. And if they don't believe that the campaign is going to be as successful as they need it to be for them to be successful, they essentially abandon you. So I've seen way too many horror stories uh, where that's happened. So you have to be really, really, really careful who you partner with in the crowdfunding industry. Yeah. And are there agencies out there who are performance based and uh, or maybe you pay later, not upfront? Any agencies like that? I mean, there are some that are performance based. Uh, we generally use Jollop for all of our for all of our crowdfunding campaigns. Uh, they're, they're one of the few people that have been, you know, really great partners, uh, really honest, uh, very fair also. Um, you know, I don't want to name some of the other ones that I would probably advise to stay away from, but if anyone wanted to reach out to me, I'm happy to have some conversations, but yeah. where the red flags are. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a great help, I think, for many. So you mentioned influencer marketing as one of the sources of your buyers what other channels do you use to to get customers so we're we're very focused on seo on organic growth and organic reach so we've we've from the very beginning again you know we were never funded again we we, we did well on kickstarter but frankly the margins weren't great so while we made some money and enough to to make the production deliver uh you know do some influencer marketing we never, we never went into this again with millions of dollars in our pocket to throw on Facebook ads or Google ads, which are very expensive. And, and uh, again, when you're selling a high priced item, it's the, the success rate is not as high as if you're selling a 20, 50, 60, hundred dollar or a dollar, hundred dollar item that may be more of an impulse buy. So our product generally doesn't lend well to, to, to an instant gratification purchase. It's more of an educated long-term uh, purchase where the customer will go to many websites, read reviews, you know, look at uh, look at blogs, try to understand why they're spending three hundred dollars. So uh, that's why for us, our focus has really been more SEO education. You know, we'll work with bloggers, magazines, writers to to write articles about us. Uh, you know, we try there's there's certain keywords that we try to rank high for. Uh, if someone is doing research on product, on materials, on leathers. You know, Italian shoes versus you know shoes made in the UK. We try to make sure that we show up uh, within that research. So you know, we kind of understand that again. Not everyone's spending three hundred dollars on a pair of shoes, but if they're considering it, we want to make sure that we're kind of front and center and as as part of that conversation uh, online. Yeah. So I guess uh, these articles and content, it's also a kind of PR activity, activity right? Which yeah. Into uh, um, SEO at the end of the day. Correct. Uh, and I'd say the traditional PR is, is generally difficult these days. Um, mm -hmm. but it's more, again, just building relationships within the, within the industry. Uh, there's a lot of bloggers out there that need content. Uh, you know, sometimes we write content and, and give it to them and we work together on the article. Uh, other times it's, it's, you know, we send them shoes and it's a, a completely objective review where, where we, uh, have nothing to do with it and, and it is what it is. And we kind of like that, uh, I'd say probably better than where we're, where we're, when we're involved, because again, it's just more authentic and it gives a no holds barred uh, opinion on our product, which generally is, is positive, thankfully, because we mm -hmm. know we, we do deliver a good product and we're, we're very proud of it. So, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a mix of things traditionally would be called PR. I think today it's, it's a little bit more than that. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. It has changed a lot in, yeah. recently. Um, yeah, I, I want to ask you about the customer retention side because in footwear, I think, especially in you know high ticket footwear, it's tricky. Like somebody buys a pair of shoes for let's say three hundred bucks, then you know they will buy maybe next year or or not next week, right? With uh, then with a cheaper product, so. How do you make sure that they will come back? How do you communicate with them? How do you nurture them? So, so I hope we have a lot of time because this this question I could probably take forty minutes answering. <laughs> um, so, one thing that we do a lot, like like for example, like we have a lot of things in, in kind of interrelated here. Um, one, we know that once our customer buys one pair of our shoes, that they're going to see the value and they're more likely than not going to come by back and buy a second pair. So one of the biggest obstacles to a person buying shoes online is the sizing and the fit. Mm -hmm. um, we make all of our shoes on the same last. So that means the sizing is exactly the same across our entire collection. So that removes one friction point from the customer experience. A lot of other brands have multiple lasts, which, which is very nice. And, you know, we have a lot of different, you know, shapes because of it, but it also raises uh, fitting issues with the customer. So, Men are tend to be very loyal. Like actually, this particular T-shirt, I literally own twenty of them in probably three different colors. Uh, same thing with this hat. Like I buy the same thing over and over because if it works and it's easy, I just order it. I don't have to think twice. Men in general are 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 pretty much like that, which is one of the reasons we're in the men's business, not in the women's business. So a guy that bought a size eight from us once can know for sure he's going to be a size eight from us no matter what he buys. So so mm -hmm. that's one thing that we do for customer retention, making it really easy. Um, then another thing that we do is we have our buyback program, which, which is one of our social initiatives. You know, a lot of, a lot of shoes end up in landfills. Uh, you know, even though our shoes are, are leather, all natural materials, um, uh, it still takes, you know, years for it to disintegrate inside of a landfill. So we don't want that to happen. And we also, you know, founded this company on the idea that to make luxury shoes accessible for everyone. And, and that includes people that can't necessarily pay for them. So, we have what we call our buyback program. So if a customer is done wearing one of our shoes, um, and frankly, there are periods of times we open it up to just about any shoe you have in your closet, we'll take that shoe back from you and give you $50 credit towards your next pair of shoes. So it keeps the customer with, within our world. It's also you know, a benefit to the environment because that shoe is not going to end up in a landfill. And we donate that shoe to, to, a, to a charity, which helps men get back on their feet. And you know, a lot of men, one of the biggest obstacles is dressing properly for that interview. So we help men dress for that interview process. So all around, it works. It's a win-win-win for, for just about everyone. Um, so that's another big thing that, that we do. Um, and then just our, we believe that customer experience is, is huge. Uh, so our customer service team generally bends over backwards for our customers. Um, you know, Frank, to be very frank with you, we, we transitioned teams uh, about two, three months ago. We had a few hiccups along the way. Uh, but now I think that we're back up in full force and really being the, uh, the customer centric customer, the customer centric business that we've always been. And, you know, it's, it's a big important factor for us. So, you know, the idea that, and this is something again, that, that really came from Kickstarter that are, I, I want to be that, that, that main street shoe store, right? So you walk into to, to a shoe store in your small town, everybody knows your name. They have an idea of the last few shoes you bought. They understand how you dress, understand your style. So I want to replicate as much as possible that experience online. So if a customer, uh, you know, we have customers that have been buying from us, you know, since 2016, they literally have, we have guys that have 40, 50 pairs of our shoes. 
so making them feel special when they call us like making them making them know that you know we care about you this is not just a one-time transaction um if you have an issue like our, our goal is to make you happy yes we have we have rules we have guidelines we have terms and conditions but you know as long as it's not getting abused you know we always strive to make the customer happy no matter what so we do whatever we can to to keep you buying from us and to keep you happy that you're buying from us and delivering a product that you're happy to wear and proud to wear and makes you feel uh, makes you feel proud so mm-hmm. it, it's kind of all i try to, to to not take 40 minutes but generally that's those are all kind of the pillars of of our customer retention strategy mm-hmm. I found one more thing in uh, in the footer of your website. So talk live with an expert stylist. What happens if I click there? Uh, that's actually something that we just went live with uh, in the last, I'd say, two weeks. Um, test it out. <laughs> no, so we partnered with a company called Feel. Uh, mm-hmm. Funny enough, it's, you know, I have a, a, a list of ideas that as they come to me that I think could be good potential businesses at some point in the future. Um, I write them down. And one of them was uh, essentially video customer service and video, video, uh, like a video stylist, especially for fashion companies, because one of the big, the big customer service issues that we see is a customer maybe buying a pair of shoes for the first time, or at least a pair of shoes from us for the first time and needs styling advice. And like he wants help choosing the right color, the right style for his wardrobe or style. Mm -hmm. And, and frankly, generally customer service teams aren't experts in that. Um, I think ours have, have become experts through through the years. Um, so I got reached out to like, literally a cold email, which I get hundreds of every day by a company called Feel. And had a great conversation with the founder uh, eventually. Mm-hmm. And it was like he was creating exactly what, what I had kind of dreamed up. Uh, so if I was an easy sell for him, I immediately said yes. And, and yeah, so we just put that up on the website now and you, the idea is like, there's a dedicated stylist for our brand and his name is Liam. So if you click on, on that button, you should end up talking to Liam, Liam live, and he's going to help you choose a style color, uh, that you want. He'll also help you with fitting. Um, if you're not certain about which size to buy essentially, uh, like as if you walked into a store, a department store, uh, having a guy stand next to you and help you through your purchasing journey, making it easier yeah. for you. That's great. I clicked it, but I closed it because, you know, we are having this podcast right. now, so maybe my camera will lose the connection and my audio. So when we I hang won't. up, we'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's great. Actually, this is the first company where I can see this. So, and I really like the idea because especially men, many of them, they are less aware of fashion and what is trendy what is not or what what is good for them and maybe some of them they are afraid to buy online that's one more reason they are afraid so i think that's a great help actually 100 percent. And, and shoes is, is very frankly a difficult item to buy online um because there's the yeah. whole fitting thing a lot of people don't want to deal with returns we, we have free returns and we try to make it frictionless but it's a it's another obstacle to getting a customer to make that first purchase yeah okay yeah, I have only one more question to you today. So what would be your number one advice to other fashion, clothing, footwear companies for next year? For next year in particular, I think that there's going to, for better or worse, be a bit of a shakeout, especially uh, across direct-to-consumer brands. It's something that we're starting to see already. 
Um, a lot of a lot of brands that started in the last five to ten years um, were built on a model to continue to raise money, and unfortunately, that money has dried up. So my advice would be that there's for sure going to be some opportunity in the industry, but you should really think to start a real business from the beginning and not one that depends on outside money every six to 12 months, because those are the ones that are going to have a hard time and are having a hard time right now. So make sure your unit economics work, make sure that your customer acquisition strategy works, make sure the numbers in your business work. Um, and even, you know, everyone, you know, everyone was chasing top line. Like, you know, the, the sexy number was how much revenue you're bringing in. No one ever cared about your bottom line. You could be losing more money than you're bringing in. It wasn't a big deal. I think that's, it's just a matter of time. Well, it's already happening now. That's, that's not a, that's not a great business strategy for the long term, And it's very hard to build a brand that way. So pay attention to your numbers, make sure you're creating a product that there's a need for. There's going to be holes in the market, but it needs to be built on a, on a solid foundation and great unit economics. Yeah, I think that's a great advice. Anytime it's a great advice, but especially now when uh, the economy is slowed down and uh, we will see what happens next year. But I think this is the moment when companies, they need to be efficient. They need to keep customers happy and strong bootstrapped companies or even uh, funded companies, back com- backs companies, but with a strong uh, bottom line, they will survive and they will thrive. So that's more. Exactly. And, and what you said, make, than ever. keeping your customers happy because making the customer you you currently already have happy and continuing to keep them as a customer is much less expensive than trying to go, you know, spend sixty to hundred to two hundred dollars on acquiring the next customer. Yeah. So focus yeah. on your existing customer base. Yeah, that's great. So thanks, Paul, uh, for uh, coming here today and sharing your story. I think both I and the listeners, we learned a lot from you. And uh, thanks everyone who watched the live stream today or we listened to the podcast uh, on the major podcasting platforms. And uh, you can find the company. Um, what's, the, what's the domain? What's the website? Acemarks.com. A-C-E-M-A-R-K-S.com. Yeah, we will put the link into the description of this episode so everyone can find this. And also I will put a link into the description, which is a 50-point checklist for the email marketing. Uh, of you know, you, Basically, if you download this one, you can uh, audit your own email marketing efforts and you can uh, improve that with this checklist. So check that out as well in the description. And thanks again, everyone. And stay tuned uh, for the next episode. Thank you, Dan. Great to be here with you today.